Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to thank you for taking time to be with us today as we provide useful information and insights to help public, private, and nonprofit organizations get more, better broadband everywhere it needs to be in the U.S. We uh, in the industry, I think, have talked a lot about broadband and a lot of the mechanics of putting these networks together and and building adoption and all of this, but I don't think we talk much about pilot projects and, and what they are, why they're valuable, and so forth, which I, which I find a little interesting because coming from the private sector, you really never started a technology project without doing a pilot project, and there's budget for it and, and planning and all the rest of it, but but we, we seem to have missed that boat um, in some areas here as we go forward in, in community broadband. And so today we're going to tackle this issue head on, give you some insights about how to do a pilot project and why it makes sense and what you should expect from it. And uh, my guest today is Randy Clint, who is the general manager of Comocom, which is a uh, subsidiary of uh, Como Cooperative, which is an electric co-op in central Missouri, and uh, they put together a fairly extensive and I would consider a very successful pilot project, so I figured no one better to come in and talk to us about it than the folks from Comocom. So, Randy, welcome to the show. Randy, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Uh, we appreciate being here and appreciate what you do. No worries, no worries. Well, let's talk about let's talk a little bit about uh, Comocom and what you guys do, and then the nature of your project, and then we'll we'll switch into the uh, the co-ops, uh, the, um, the the pilot project. Okay. Well, let me give you a little um, uh, background on Como Electric Cooperative first. We're a um, a decent size electric co-op in central Missouri. We we have about uh, 32,000 electric meters or services that we serve. We we have about 4,000 miles of electric plant, and we serve a footprint of about 2,300 square miles, right in the heart of uh, of Missouri. And uh, for for some time, we we've noticed that our our membership has definitely been lacking in broadband access. So for the past uh, four to five years, we've heard from our membership that there's just nothing available for them to get access. And uh, so we've been scratching our heads for several years trying to help solve that problem. So it's it's not been something that's uh, been something we just did quickly. Um, it's been something we've been watching for some time and, and uh, trying to solve a problem for our members who are our owners. Mm-hmm. So... What was the main driver? What was it that people were telling you they needed, uh, which convinced you guys to to shift gears? Well, when our I'm sorry, expanding your offerings really is what we're talking about here. Right, and and part of it is, for one thing, we've had fiber for many years on our electrical system, whether it's feeding a substation or our own communications between our our, our two offices. So we've had fiber for that. We just our members didn't directly benefit from that, and our membership, frankly, just had no access to broadband whatsoever. And uh, a majority of them 
you know, dial up and satellite were their only options. And we're fairly a fairly technologically uh, advanced cooperative. We 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 have um, mobile workforce. We have uh, outage management. We have our our system completely GIS mapped. We have e-bill uh, for our customers. And you know it's it's kind of hard for you to communicate with your members electronically when they don't have access to internet. Mm-hmm. So in in essence, it was. Uh initially then it was taking shape as a uh a bridge a communication bridge just to your customers in order to provide better service right and and we don't know why really why our members reached out to us asking us to help solve this problem um you know i i don't know if it's a power line carrier fad that kind of went on for a while and they thought maybe we could do it over the power lines or or if it's just other co-ops in the country that have kind of got their feet wet in the broadband business and and but uh for some reason they reached out to us and asked us to help solve the problem. Mhm. So um so then let's talk about the the pilot project um a little bit or or, or maybe we should start with the um the, the vision for what this would be because you, you guys and what caught my attention uh in one of your first emails uh had had to do with the fact that um, a lot of the excitement to really move the thing forward uh, and sort of the vision for, you know, what this network was going to be came as a result of applying for broadband stimulus money. That's correct. And and I think it was back in 2009, we started looking at trying to solve this problem. And the first thing we started with was a survey of our membership. And that really opened our eyes to, uh, the lack of available broadband. I think at that time, about 19% of our members had access to uh, some type of broadband service other than satellite. And what we found is about that same time, USDA did a study and, and said that rural customers nationwide, about 44% had access. So we saw that we were really far behind. So we started looking at uh, as wireless as a solution uh, for solving the problem. And we we did some wireless uh, propagation studies, and we have some very hilly, challenging tree terrain, mm-hmm. and it was just going to be require so many towers for us to get good coverage for all of our membership. And since we are a cooperative and we're a member-owned cooperative, we felt it was important if we were going to leverage the equity of the cooperative to provide this service that we had to do it for every one of the members, that it wasn't fair to provide service to some and not others. Mm-hmm. So that's that's how we kind of got to the fiber optics portion. But, of course, as everybody knows, uh, building out fiber optics can be very capital intensive. And about that time, the grant came along, the grant opportunity for uh, rural broadband through USDA and RUS, and we did apply for that. And as part of that, uh, you know there was a uh, quite a bit of press surrounding that that application process and and we did ask for letters of support from community anchor institutions from our membership in general and by the time that process was over we had a box full of letters of um members and businesses and and schools that really opened our eyes to the need and some really kind of heartbreaking stories were uh 
people were lacking in educational opportunities or um, had to drive, for example, um, a student was taking an online course that was only offered online for part of his degree, and he actually had to drive to the university's computer lab to take his online course because he couldn't take it from home. Mm-hmm. And we have a box full of letters telling that story. So we really got the membership's interest peaked during that grant process. So when we weren't awarded the grant, uh, it was quite a letdown. Mm, I can imagine. So you basically then had to move from, you know, here's obvious demand, here's, you know, an obvious um you know, organization that is in position to really provide that kind of service. So then it's really a question of how do we move this thing forward. So let's use this as the opportunity then to talk about then how did the idea for the pilot project uh, come about and how was it intended initially? Like how were you planning to execute it? Well, what we wanted to do was, excuse me, come up with a solution that our board would accept and and we, we estimated that building our entire system out with fiber optics would be a 50 to $60 million um, project. And our board wouldn't be willing to jump on a project like that without some kind of a um, an idea of how well it's going to work. They definitely weren't interested in build it, and they will come. So what we did is we we started out by trying to develop just a small project, our pilot project, that would accurately represent our entire system. And and we had a few million dollars of funding to develop that, that pilot project, but the board still wasn't ready just to build it and hope that the uh, $2 million investment would pay off. So what they asked us to do was to go out and pre-sell this area and collect applications along with $100 deposits to prove to the board that there was a significant commitment from our membership to take the service and fund it. And uh, that's that's kind of how the pilot project got uh, uh, started. Mm-hmm. So now how, how long before the Google effort was this? Because basically what you're describing is what Google did with its, what, Fiberhood, Google Hoods, Somebody's hoods. They were. They were. They put together. Right. That. Uh, uh, this was actually in early 2011 uh, that we started this process. So if I if I remember right, I think this was prior to the Google Fiber project in Kansas City even being announced. Yes, you're right. That would have been uh, right when they were asking for letters and applications and whatnot. Right, and you know it's. Um, it, it's not much different than the history of the cooperatives uh, to begin with. And we've heard stories from uh, long-time members that were here when the cooperative was founded that it was a community drive to get the cooperative organized. And, you know, they had um, new cooperative members going door-to-door collecting the $5 membership fees, uh, which, you know, in the 1930s was, was a significant investment and to get get people to sign up and to be interested in taking electricity and and that's pretty much what our we modeled our pilot project after is um and it wasn't long that uh, after we announced it that the uh um membership really took off on their own and it became it really truly became a grassroots community effort to get this pilot project off the ground mhm 
Interesting. So, so this whole idea then of uh, getting dollars to show intent or depth of interest is, has been going on for a while. It's not actually new. New. It's just a new application of an old idea. Right. Mm-hmm. That, that is correct. And and we're in the process of gathering historical information on our 75 year anniversary uh, that's coming up and. And it was brought to our attention that uh, there was actually a movement um, that we had to get a certain percentage of people to sign up in an area to build it. And that's exactly, mirrors exactly what we're doing today, what we did today with the uh, with the pilot project. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that, that is pretty amazing. That is pretty amazing. Now, in terms of what I would call the... the um, the structural planning for the pilot project was uh, gathering uh, hundred dollar deposits the 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 whole of the of the pilot project or was this a more involved process than just that? Oh, it was it was much more involved than that. We started the first thing we did is we started with uh, the areas that we would build. And we have a diverse service territory that ranges from farm country to uh, recreational uh, resort area at at, uh, the Lake of the Ozarks. So we didn't think one pilot project would accurately represent our system. So what we decided to do was to come up with two equal size projects. And since our entire electrical system is uh, has been GIS and we, we have a great mapping system of our electrical plant, we could accurately go and find areas that, if you took them and averaged them, would equal our system. So we took into account um, density, um, methods of construction from aerial to underground. We looked at uh, rocky terrain versus uh, just standard uh, dirt where, where we can find it. We did. Uh, we looked at demographics. We didn't want to go into a very poor area. We didn't want to go into a very wealthy area. So we we really worked hard laying the groundwork uh, to select these pilot areas to so that the results would then make much more sense than if we just picked an area and tried to build it. Hmm. Okay. So in essence, your your pilot area, if you will. In, in many ways reflected what you viewed the market to be, like your whole coverage area or footprint, I guess, for your electricity services. That's correct. And and with our GIS system, we then, once we once we selected the areas, that gave us the, the members then that could participate in the pilot. So that gave us our target uh, number of services passed. And from that, then... We estimated the cost of construction based on those pilot areas, and then we looked at then we built our financial model based on that. So then we kind of knew what our take rate really needed to be to make this uh, network self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. So once we determined that number, that's the threshold we went to the board of directors with to get approval to do the pre-sales for the pilot project. You mean that that this number, this percentage was the target, and then you were basically saying, if we reach this target, then we have a viable uh, opportunity to to build a full network. Well, what we did even before that in the pilot is that threshold was 25% of all services passed had to sign up for the service. 
So we went out and pre-sold that with the applications, the $100. Um, it was quite a community effort. We did reach the 25%, so the board voted to go ahead and construct the pilot project. And then they wanted us to operate the pilot project for some time to prove that uh, that our, our numbers were accurate in our model so that we could extrapolate those across our entire system. Mm-hmm. Interesting, interesting. That's um, uh, that, that's pretty impressive. So now the uh, I was looking through one of the articles about uh, what you guys did. So your actual take rate, though, was more like forty six percent. So in essence, you almost doubled your your target goal there. Yeah, and that's another thing we learned in the pilot is it, it was pretty difficult six to nine months prior to construction to sell a service that didn't exist. And we did reach, uh, I believe that when the board, the deadline for the board's decision was uh, we needed that 25%, we did reach 27% at that time. But -hmm. what's happened is since the year that the pilot project has been completed, we've then almost doubled our number of subscribers on that same footprint. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow, that is that is pretty impressive. Now, I think some would argue that um, in many parts of the U.S., if you were to offer folks a, um, a a faster network, the take rate would be high just by virtue of the the, the pent up demand factor. Is that, is that a fair assessment? I would think that would be kind of the 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 standard uh, thought. What was, I suppose what made it difficult for us is just the the time lag between selling the service and the uncertainty of whether we were going to actually build it. And, um, but it really, it really kind of took off on its own. I mean, we could, we could go out and we could, we could, uh, we could send mailers and, and we could have community meetings and answer questions. But when the community that self got involved, I think is, where the turning point really, really happened. And and when people realized that there was a chance that this would never come if they didn't get involved, I think that's what drove it. And then once it was built, the the people maybe that weren't quite so uh, anxious to sign up months ahead of time uh, then talked to their neighbors and saw that the service worked. Uh, it was a great asset to have, and uh, that's where our growth came from ever since. Mm-hmm. So the the there's a certain amount of grassroots activism, if you will, that is is necessary here, as it is with many other aspects of moving broadband projects forward. And now, did you find that most of that activism was generated from within the community, or did you have to kind of you know I don't know recruit or seed the the area with a couple of um, you know? activists that you guys cultivated how how did that kind of come to be well what what happened is is our members actually contacted us and wanted to know what they could do uh, because the when we first announced it it didn't grow as fa- it we didn't get the signups that we thought we would mm-hmm. so when we knew the threshold was 25% and you know the members we we had a uh, website where they could monitor the progress of us getting to the 25% threshold they they actually got a little concerned we wouldn't make it. So they were calling in saying, can I do something? What can I do to help? Um, 
we we had some uh, community meetings. Uh, we had we had one member offer to pay five hundred dollars to pay for five people to sign up. We had a we had two local banks actually step up and offer to pay the deposits for anybody that banked with them that was on the pilot project. And at one of our community meetings, one of the bank owners stood up and offered to pay the hundred dollar deposit for everybody in the room. So mm-hmm. wow. it it really uh, it really kind of took off from that. And then when our members said that they wanted to go door to door, but they just didn't have all the answers. What we did then was we paired up employees uh, with with uh, members to go door to door in their neighborhood, so that the employees there to answer the questions. But uh, when it's a next door neighbor knocking on a door, you, you get a lot better, um, you know, a lot more receptive to the message when it's their neighbor than when it's somebody trying to sell them something. Mm-hmm. No doubt, and that's a uh, that's an interesting. Um observation uh this this whole issue of how do you engage folks at the grassroots level because if you look at the successes of many of the networks that are out there at some point a, a fair amount of that success came from some level of grassroots activism whether it was in the pilot part of the project or it was, you know, after the project uh, f- formally launched. I mean, in some cases, even during the needs assessment process, uh, project teams have figured out ways to recruit, um, you know, local activists and turn them loose within the community. And and all of this local activism is is really the the thing that pushes things over the over the brink and and gets to, gets to become a reality. And and it's um, you know. It was the it was the door to door. It was the community meetings. It was the neighbor talking to neighbor. Uh, we did yard signs, um, which really drove, um, you know, showed people support. Um, and in in some ways, we tried to run it a little bit like a political campaign. Mm-hmm. We did uh, we did phone surveys of of people that weren't signing up to find out why they weren't signing up, and that let us create targeted messages for for us to approach those uh, individuals with their concern of why they weren't signing up specifically. So if it was cost, we could talk about value. If it was uh, um, that maybe as an electric cooperative, maybe we didn't have the expertise to operate a broadband network. We talked about our expertise and our experience in in doing other things. So so we we really... uh, uh, that that kind of political campaign and and the message that we tried to 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 take to our members was this is a community project this isn't us selling a service to make you to make money this is us trying to better our community and and you know to come on board and be a part of this project mhm <laughs> so you had rallies and you had uh surveys and opinion polls and all the all that's pretty cool. I never even had thought about um that, but I can also see where the elements of a campaign like a successful political campaign does what you guys were trying to achieve, which is get people to become aware, become activists to in essence sell their neighbors and get them out to vote and in this case being the voting being uh <laughs> you know getting getting people to commit that hundred dollars. And then you had your bank involved, which was a um, 
That was a pretty stellar move. I I did read a clip about that. And um, now, how did they full on structure that? Did they was it just for the people who were in the room when that person made that offer, or was this a you know a, a match across the board? Everybody who paid a hundred, they the bank gave a hundred, and did they want that hundred dollars back? The bank. Oh, well, what happened is uh, we were approached first by a bank, a local bank, and what they wanted to do was anybody that had an account with them that wanted the service, they were willing to pay the $100 for them. And that was the first step. And what they did is we, we created a voucher that they could go pick up at the bank, and the bank would verify that they had an account. If they did, they'd give them the voucher, and they would turn that voucher into us. And then we just stored those until the end, and then we told them if we didn't reach the threshold, we wouldn't. You know, the bank wouldn't pay. But you know, if we reached the threshold, and we build. We were going to build it. We would turn those vouchers into the bank to pay um, for those. And then at the community meeting, um, the bank owner actually stood up on a chair during at the end of the meeting and said that anybody that wanted to sign up that night in the room, he would pay for their um, their deposit. So. Um, it was it was a great feeling to have um, you know an anchor in the in the community such as a bank to step up and become a part of it and you know we had the uh, local chamber of commerce president going door to door with us in the business district we had realtors get involved uh, you know realtors and banks and um, these are the people that would benefit from this network in the community so. Uh, they a lot of them really saw the future of it, and that's that's what got them involved. Uh huh. Jeez, that's um, <laughs> that's that's just pretty amazing. I think I'm just a bit overwhelmed here for once. I, I normally, you know, this all I take a solid stride, but you know, I've never heard a program described exactly like this, and and exactly in the context of a political campaign. But it all it all makes sense. I mean, it all resonates, and um, and then hopefully our uh, listeners will 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 grasp this as well, um, because at a certain point, um, I think that this becomes an emotional issue. Uh, it's not just about um, well, you know, we can get ten megabits, or now we can get a hundred megabits you know, sort of the mechanical, technical part of it, I think there is an emotional element that needs to be tapped, you know, you know, and you talked about the letters. I mean, the letters are a perfect example of this where it's no longer just about, well, you know, we can get, you know, 100 people or 500 people better access. It's about something more emotional to the, that hits the gut a much, you know, much harder. At least that's how I'm sort of seeing this conversation. <clears throat> And I can tell you from my past history and what's really driven me to be part of broadband that all the time that I've been involved is it, back in the 90s, I had a software company. It was an agricultural-based software company. Um, I, I had grown up on a farm and a ranch and been a member of a cooperative uh, pretty much all my life. And on that farm and ranch, we we started an agricultural software company. We had uh, we had employees, um, and and you know in the early '90s, the mid '90s, the internet was just the web, World Wide Web was just really getting going, and we realized at that time we really had to have a presence, and we were doing some innovative things with electronic communication that required internet access, and the location we were at, 
the only available internet access was a 56K dedicated circuit that we paid $700 a month for in, in the mid-90s. And what drove the emotional aspect of that for me was my neighbors in town just a few miles away were getting DSL. And they were getting, you know, 56K, 128K, 256K DSL for $39, 49 $50 a month, and I was paying 700 and, and no matter how much I reached out to our local provider uh, for my need, um, they didn't listen. And mm-hmm. and it's um, you feel powerless. You know you need the service. You need the service for community you know, for communication. You need it for education. Uh, if you're a, if you have a home based business, you desperately need it. And to have a provider just consistently ignore you. And many of our letters detail where they've reached out to their provider and they said are you going to bring DSL uh, into our area are you going to can you extend your cable plant you know a half mile to reach my home and either they're ignored or or flat out told it will never be there Mm -hmm. and that that powerless feeling that you get helped drive I think some of that emotion in our pilot project Mm -hmm. no doubt no doubt and it was interesting I uh Again, in doing my my prep work here for for this um, event. Oh, uh, by the way, what was the name of the bank that? Uh, if I, I assume they want their name thrown around for this conversation, uh, which the, bank was that? The the first bank that stepped up was Concordia Bank, mm-hmm. and they had a branch in in one of the town um, in the community where we were doing part of our pilot, and and then after they stepped up, another bank also did, and that was Central Bank of Lake of the Ozarks. Um, they also stepped up and and did the voucher uh, for their uh, account holders as well. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's pretty amazing. That <laughs> just that just slays me. Oh, I, I, I yes, I was going down the track on another question. Uh, um, one of the comments I heard attributed to someone from your organization was, uh, "Oh no, it's, it's your Facebook page." It basically says we provide a gigabit because our competitors won't, which I thought was was good. <laughs> I think it's a good <laughs> summation. It's like we do this because they can't or they won't. And that's well, really and, your your mission here. Well and, and and part of that is this is fiber to the home. Um as I'm sure most people are aware, fiber has such immense capacity and we we thought it was a little underwhelming to just offer the same speeds that others do in in communities that neighbor us and and yeah, we can do five meg, twenty meg, fifty meg, hundred meg all day long, no big deal. And um but we we thought really to to tell the story of the difference between fiber and coax or fiber and copper was the gigabit was the necessary piece, I think, that really illustrates that this is what fiber can do, but um these other technologies can't. And and I think uh, launching the gigabit service, I think, has opened the eyes of our members of if we can do this today, what can we do in the future? And what can others in the area do? And if they can't even come close to that, maybe maybe this is uh, this is the future for us and this is what we need. Mm-hmm. Now, um, one of the... Uh the things I've talked about with folks about 
uh, electric co-ops, and uh, you know similarly um, some of the other types of co-ops that provide utility services is that your operational structure is conducive to delivering broadband services. And you know, I've, I mean, I've said it a bunch of times, but I want to hear it from the from the horse's mouth here. You know, is that indeed true? In what ways is that true? And should communities be looking more um, or pursuing more aggressively their local utility co-ops as the the point organization for driving broadband initiatives? Well, and we've. For one thing, I really believe you know broadband is a utility, and we look at ourselves as a broadband company. We're not a cable company. We're not a telephone company. We're first and foremost a broadband company, and and we do offer television service and we do offer telephone service. But the reason we're doing this is broadband. So as a as a utility, um, for one thing, we're we're used to building poles and wires, and we also we 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 already own the poles. We have the right of way. We we have the the back office uh, system in place. We have a customer service department. We have a billing system. We have the um, the customer's information already. We we have all the pieces to put this together that really gives us the economies of scale, and and you know the expertise in building line and and doing design and doing mapping and all those things and all those systems are already here in place. So mm-hmm. uh, I think it's just a, a natural fit. And, you know, and the one thing I don't want to leave out is that we have well over a thousand electrical distribution devices on our, our electric plant that we would like to talk to. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> communicating with those can be a an expensive um, proposition when, when using SCADA devices to uh, control voltage and and to uh, be notified of outages when they occur, to open and close breakers, to switch line, um, all those things out there we have a need to talk to. So it was another nice, um, it's a complimentary thing, is to be able to go out and this fiber uh, is becoming an integral part of our electrical system as it goes out and talks to these devices and brings us this data back that we can act on and and we're trying always trying to keep the our electric rates low and knowing our system and making our electrical system one of the most advanced in, in the country using the fiber allows us to be very efficient and and to help keep the upward pressure on electric rates at a minimum Mhm. Mhm. Yeah. There. There is a. There's a lot to be said for that. I mean, if you look at Chattanooga, I mean, they're not a co-op, but they are in the business of providing, you know, electricity services. And the gigabit network for them, or the fiber network for them, <clears throat> started out as a way to augment their ability to deliver better service, because there was significant, uh, you know, a significant dollar impact to the community, to the businesses. And the organization, the EPB, if they use the technology to to streamline and make the service delivery more effective, and then from that became well, you know, we've got this thing in place, and we've connected all these people in every home and trailer park and all the rest of it. So why not deliver 
the, 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 the Internet service because that's really what people need and it's consistent with our mission of delivering, you know, a service to our community that helps them, you know, be better as individuals or as businesses and organizations. Right, and and you know we have the same mission in our co-op. It's it's more than just providing electric service. It's it's being a part of our community, and in, improving the quality of life for our membership as a whole. Mm-hmm. So now your project, the the full-on project, is going to cover or or lay down what four thousand miles um, of cable, right? Right. We we have 4,000 miles of electric distribution, and we plan on overbuilding the entire electric plant with fiber optics. So, um, yeah, it's it's quite a project, and it's um, those. I'll tell you, the doing the pilot project was invaluable. Uh, it gave us all the input variables to plug into our model to build the entire system, and it really gave the board the information and the confidence to proceed with the entire project that they probably wouldn't have had otherwise. Mhm. There's no doubt that there, that uh, obviously this um you know this pilot process has been has been has been valuable. Now the the, the build out itself did you adjust your estimated build out time based on what you learned during the pilot or was it always expected to be uh a four year endeavor? No, we um, we we kind of estimated that originally, and and what we did is the uh, pilot project pace and the number of crews we had it was a manageable pace for us. So um, it didn't, you know, at least give us the confidence to know that we could build it in that amount of time. And building four thousand miles of fiber to the home, um, it's not four thousand miles of middle mile. It's it's connecting every house. You know, is a is a complex project, and we're trying not to add so much staff that we get over. You know, when the project's complete, that we have too much staff. So we're trying to do it as minimally as we can. And um, um, but our members obviously would like to have it faster than four years. If there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of messages on our Facebook page that uh, people are very disappointed to be a part of phase three or four. Mm-hmm. But you, you sort of, I mean, when I've talked to other folks in this business, you know, there is a insistence on managing the pace of your development as well as managing the pace of your customer acquisition. And that in some cases, um, you can get too much success and you can, and, and then subsequently re- re- reacting to that success could get you into trouble as opposed to making you the the hero. You want to talk a little bit about that, um, you know, that that pacing, that need for pacing? Well, and part of it, there's a few reasons for one thing that we we split it up into phases. And what that does is it gives us our board control of the the project in that if nine months into this or 12 months into this, we aren't meeting the projections that we gave to them, they have the option of putting the brakes on and slowing the project down or you know delaying a year or it gives them more flexibility then uh, to kind of bite off a little piece at a time but also um you know even at this pace our first year we need to hook up 25 to 30 customers per day and in doing that 
um, we want to make sure that there's quality. Uh, one thing that co-ops are very picky about is their relationship with their member owners. And we're going to be going into these people's houses and doing work. And we want to we want to maintain the incredible relationship we have with our members and the and the high ACSI scores that we have for customer service. We want that to translate. We don't want to bring down the reputation of the co-op when we get into the broadband business. So we're trying to do it right. We're trying to do a quality product, and we're trying to trying to keep the customers happy like they have been with the cooperative for the past 75 years. Mm-hmm. So let's shift you to um, consultant mode here for a second. If uh, you know you were sitting in front of a number of your counterparts in other communities, whether they are electric co-ops or you know the community has taken some other uh, approach to to doing this. How would you walk them through, you know, the key steps of executing an effective pilot um, project? Well, I think, you know, it's everything that we've talked about so far. It's um, it's determining the need. It's um, getting the community involved. It's picking an area to build that's um, very representative of what you're planning on completing. Uh, if you go into a very dense area, um, your your cost per mile and your take rates could really skew your results. If uh, um, or if you go into a wealthy area, um, you know that may that may skew your results as well. Do your research on your demographics and also you know experiment with different construction methods. We've uh, there's a lot of things we've done to lower our cost per mile that we got to do in the pilot. That would be hard to change gears if you're in the middle of a full-blown construction project. Mm-hmm. For example, um, you know, a big cost of deploying aerial cable plant or fiber plant is make-ready costs. Mm-hmm. And and we tried a lot of different methods to minimize the number of pole changes that were required to re- to achieve clearance or strength. And and we came up with a lot of creative solutions that really lowered that cost per mile and helped make this project feasible. Uh, we also did some microfiber trials for underground and solid rock. We did um, we did rock saws. We tried we tried all sorts of different methods of construction, and collected that data and, and tried to come up with the best solution for the main project. So, you know, having that ability to experiment in the pilot, look at different methods, maybe try multiple contractors. Um, it, it it's it's a great learning process and collect data that's the other thing is 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 use that collect data on everything that you do in the pilot whether it's a um cost per pole whether it's um cost for rolling your trucks whether um you know anything that you can come up with you know collect as much data as you can because it, it took us a few months to go through all that data after our pilot and, and to turn those into input variables into our our, our total system financial projections. Mm-hmm. Now, the um, the financial projections part, uh, this is another crucial area. I'm not sure if it gets enough uh, attention or not. Number one, is the financial projection exercise an ongoing exercise as opposed to, you know, you do this one massive amount of number crunching and then you're done? Uh, so let's start with that question. Well, I I have 
I probably have 35 different versions of our financial model. Um, oh. And and it's it's various what ifs and tests I've ran. But what I've got is is the the one that I always go back to is the one I presented to the board that they made their decision on. Mm-hmm. So that's what you know. That's our control financial model, because that's the one that we have to keep coming back to to show the board that we are either meeting those projections that we promised. Because if these input variables prove true, then the output should also prove true. Well. I, we we constantly go back and we work on that model as we go along, <clears throat> but we always keep that control. And when I go into the boardroom and talk about where we're at, I go back to that control to show them that we're meeting those projections. Our construction costs are less than what we expected, and but we do keep a kind of a running live copy that's where we're at actually. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Now, who did the who did the financials? Did you call in a uh, firm, or did you have that expertise within the the co-op? Well, when we originally started our pilot project, we did have a consultant, and uh, and and they they kind of gave us uh, some input variables, and a lot of those we came up with during the uh, the grant process. You know, part of the uh, application for the grant, of course, was a financial model, and a lot of those variables that we used during that started kind of our foundation of our pilot project. But then uh, everything we did from that point on was all done in house, and and we learned we learned some things during the pilot that uh, you know our estimates might have been low on some things, but high on others. But overall, we did come in about twenty percent under budget that we expected the pilot project to cost us. Mm-hmm. Hmm. That's always a good thing. <laughs> I don't think anybody really complains when you when you when you um come in under budget. But I may be wrong, but I, I, I think that's a fairly safe, you know, guarantee of employment right there. <laughs> well and it's it's not something that we def- we we didn't have experience in building fiber optics. We we had minimal experience in it. And so we tried to be conservative because our board was making a decision based on those numbers and I would rather miss them high than miss them low. Right. No, I I'm with you on that one. I'm with you on that one. The um there was something else about I'm trying to trying to trying to think here. I know we we you know we talked about sort of the mission here. We've talked about uh you know meeting the the expectations and so forth. Um what other marketing um tasks went on during the pilot? Cuz I think that this is also something that folks need to understand, you know, another topic we don't talk about a lot is marketing. You know, how do you talk, how do you do the marketing part? They'll talk about broadband adoption, but I don't think people necessarily draw the link to the marketing aspect and marketing tactics and so forth and so on. But I also think that people, like, don't think very much about the marketing until they finish the build-out. And then it's like, well, now we got it ready, you know, we're ready to launch it. But don't you have to do a lot of marketing during the pilot project itself? Yeah, we did. And and that's another thing we learned about too is you just can't send one letter tell them they're eligible for the pilot project and sit back and wait for the sign-ups to come in because they they won't. And that kind of surprised us. We thought there would be such pent-up demand that as soon as these people got the letters, everybody would sign up and and it just wasn't that way. And um certain people respond to different messages differently and we learned that not one method of communication worked, and 
we we did direct mail, we did postcards, we did uh phone calls, we did Facebook, we did website, we did door to door. Um it took every bit of of effort to can not only just tell them that the service was available but to educate them on what it meant and um you know, when our door-to-door was the last phase of the project, and it was still amazing with the marketing efforts that we went through. We'd knock on a door, and they weren't aware of our project. And that still gets us to this day that uh, no matter how much we talk about it in our, our own publications or we do bill stuffers or we do things, we're still, our construction crews are coming in and telling us that people still haven't heard of the project, and it's just amazing to us. So marketing is definitely something that you can't uh, you can't ignore, and um, the one thing that's interesting to us in in the small areas where we do have true competition uh, with a existing cable provider that does provide broadband is educating those people on the difference between fiber optics and coax, because you know they they may supply 30 megabits today. Well, that may be all they need, but convincing them that all else being equal, taking our service gets you something in the future. So that's a difficult message uh, uh, to get to people when they have a service that's working today. But mm-hmm. uh, those are areas we need because those are the most dense areas in our system. So we really need those dense areas to help pay for the the, the less dense areas out in the rural areas. Mm-hmm. Now, is this an argument that needs to be made to individuals as well as businesses because I, I, I would I would see why, you know, you talk about future proofing and so forth when you're talking to a business audience, right? Because they're they're looking right. at making an investment that is going that has to be long term and thought about in long term impacts. But uh, you know, the average home, you know, the person at home, do they really care about future proofing? You know, it, it doesn't seem like they do sometimes and and I mean, we're getting take rates in those areas. It's just not as high as the other areas, and 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 it takes somebody that really understands what fiber optics means to get them to move. And I think if everybody knows that if if there's not a significant cost savings and you can't get their attention, it's really it's really tough to get somebody to move over to your service um, without spending significant marketing dollars to really differentiate yourself from the competition. And mm-hmm. one thing that we think we have an advantage of is is um, the one thing that I use most often is if I get the question asked, why would I switch? I've, I'm getting 30 meg internet today, and I'm getting television, I'm getting telephone, and your rates are about the same. Why should I go through the effort of switching? And my answer is you own us. You're an mm-hmm. owner. And if we're successful, you're successful. And the profits of the subsidiary are rolled into the cooperative and those are returned to the members in capital credits. So uh, do you want the profits to go to an executive in New York or do you want the profits to be returned to you in a check at the end of the year? And mm-hmm. that's the advantage we have if everything else is being equal. But we have other advantages too. We have an ACSI score in the mid-80s where mm-hmm. you know typical cable companies have an ACSI in the low 60s. Um, you know, several of our, a couple of our competitors made the top 15 list of the worst customer service companies in the country. So uh, that's another differentiating factor is um, the customer service that we provide. Right. 
and uh, the the customer service, in in my humble opinion, is the key to effective marketing. I mean, basically, you will live or die, regardless of how much money you spend on marketing, based on the quality of your customer service. And unless there's something different going on in your part of the world, I'm I, I expect that that is definitely the case there. Right, and 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 the the reason is it's the incentive. I mean, there there are owners. Um, it's so we have a we have a much better incentive to uh, make sure when we come away from that uh, that house that they're satisfied with the connection that we did, and and they're also consistently getting the speeds that we advertise, and and that their phone service is crystal clear, and their TV's working like it should be, and and we have that incentive. Mm-hmm. And and that's a strong one uh, in in large part because well the history of of co-ops I mean as as we look across board again not just electric co-ops but any kind of member based co-op that is basically run by the community uh, typically has a greater sense of um, ownership by the customers. Technically, you know, technically speaking, the customers, but there's also a greater sense of responsibility by the organization, and the, the two of those together are pretty are pretty powerful. That's right, and we've got uh, <clears throat> our ACSI data shows us that one of the questions is, do you believe you're a member or do you believe you're a customer? And mm-hmm. the customer satisfaction number is much higher uh, for those that believe they're a member. Mm-hmm. Yes, that, that that makes a that makes a whole lot of sense. And um now do you see um lots of other electric co-ops getting into the broadband business? Well, I tell you I've in the last few months I've had several calls from electric co-ops all across the country and and I think a lot of them are watching what we're doing and we may be one of the first to really step out and build an entire fiber out to the home system without government assistance. And and there's, um, I know, two projects in Oklahoma that are underway, um, uh, fiber to the home projects. There's um, uh, one getting started in Minnesota, um, and also uh, there's one in the state of Washington, I believe, that's, uh, that's called and it's following our project and making presentations to their board. And we've also talked to several others in the state of Missouri as well. So there's getting to be quite a bit of interest and a lot of interest in whether uh, how our project will succeed and whether those um, whether our success formula will work for others. And one thing about electric co-ops is we're all democratically controlled and we're all independent. So um, what works for us maybe may or may not work for others. We we have a, s- a certain environment here that I think will make our project flourish. And, and part of that is our density. We're, we're fortunate to have a, uh, a recreational resort area that uh, drives up our density, that helps us make this possible. But also, a majority of our coverage territory is served by you know, two of the biggest uh, telephone providers in the nation that don't have a great track record for del- delivering broadband into the rural areas. Uh, if we if we had a telephone a progressive telephone co-op or a small independent that was progressive inside of our area, it may not be the same story. You know, they they mm-hmm. may be providing the service that member their members need or their customers need uh, that might have not created the environment that we have here today. Mm-hmm. 
So let me ask a, a quick question here because we've got about three, four minutes left. Um, how necessary is it to have to sell TV services in order to make the the Internet mm-hmm. side of the business successful? Well, all along we uh, we were told that TV is necessary for delivering the service. It's the piece that holds them. It's the bundle that that, that moves people. And and we, we did the pilot project without TV. Um, we did the pilot project alone on data and voice. And the reason why is our board didn't want a lot of stranded cost if we didn't proceed past the pilot in a you know a a very expensive uh, capital investment for television. So we have a unique measurement that others may not have is we had our pilot project where everybody got the opportunity to sign up for $100 for data or voice or data and voice without TV. Well, when we launched TV about a month ago, we went back to that original area and gave those people a second opportunity to sign up for $100. And so that allowed us to measure exactly what that did to our take rate. And what we found is it drove up our take rate by 7%. So by adding television in a bundle, um, we did get uh, 7% more uh, fiber connects with the only variable that changed being television. Mm -hmm. So that gives you an idea. Okay. So let's say that we agree that it increases take rates, but really would you have been in trouble if you hadn't offered the – the TV. I mean, you still you still would have been profitable without it, right? Uh, the pilot project would have for sure. And where we find difficulty not having TV is when we do compete against the cable company that does have television. Mm-hmm. It's hard to get people to break up a bundle uh, when you don't have a bundled service. But um, you know, probably over time, in the next five to ten years, TV may not be an important service, and we're trying to build our head in so that we can do over-the-top and provide mm-hmm. HLS streaming, and when the content rights catch up to the technology, uh, that we can turn this head end into an over-the-top type head end that who knows where the TV market's going in the future. So, so in essence, you're hedging your bets, but your profitability is still assured with or without the TV. Uh, we believe so. Okay. Yeah, I, I believe the same thing, but you know, cause I've, I've been kind of preaching this gospel for a while, so undoubtedly I'm, I'm I'm a little bit biased here. But you know, because I just look at it as it is so expensive to do. Um, maybe you know, maybe people should do what you did: is like you know, make it profitable without it, add it later, and then we'll see where we go. Um, and in, so, you know, the the take rate you talked about in our pilot of forty six percent that was of electric meters. Mm-hmm. So if you put that translate that to households, true houses or premises, that number is much higher than that, and that was data and voice only. Right, right, makes sense. Well, we have come to the um, end of our show. I am totally fascinated, awed, and much appreciative of you uh, coming in and explaining what's been going on with Comocom, and we'll be in touch again. And I, you know, wish you guys all the best luck and. You know, but definitely much appreciation on behalf of the audience for coming in and, and talking about what you guys are up to. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Coolness. And to our audience, thank you for tuning in again. Uh, we'll be back uh, next week with more good stuff. So keep tuned, in tune, tell all your friends, and we'll talk again soon. Have a great day.